You're listening to Innovate Strathclyde, the University of Strathclyde's podcast on innovation and technology. Hello and welcome to this episode of Innovate Strathclyde with your host, me, Amanda Carpenter. And me, Chris White. Chris, we've done four, I think, now of these podcasts and they've all been absolutely fascinating and topical. But I think you must have had your crystal ball out when you decided to choose this as a topic for today, because we're talking about financing and governing green growth, but specifically around energy and the economics of energy. And we find ourselves in somewhat of a kind of political and uh, energy-based storm at the moment, don't we, with what's happening to the energy sector and the rising price of gas and the possibility that the lights might be going out. Uh, That's right. Um, It couldn't be more timely, I think, in the same way when we did our podcast on uh, climate resiliency just happened to be timed around when the IPCC AR6 report came out. So uh, I don't think any of us have a crystal ball. Maybe we're just just a a bit fortunate. (laughs) Or maybe we just really know what some of the trends and themes are. And I think that probably reflects the expertise that you have, both in your department, but also with your colleagues. And today we've got two colleagues um, from the university joining us and both bring very acute and incredibly thoughtful views to this conversation. And I'm delighted to welcome Mary Spoich, who's director of the Fraser of Alland Institute. Mary, welcome and hello. Hi, thanks for having me. Great to see you. And Jamie Stewart, who's deputy director of the Centre for Energy Policy Hub. Jamie, hello. Nice to see you. Hello. And yeah, thanks for having me as well. Thanks both so much for joining us. I mean, this is an enormous subject area and there's a lot for us to explore together because it covers both policy and economics and the framing of that, as well as some of the bigger issues around energy and climate change and transition. So I wonder if I could just get you to start by telling us very, very briefly about both of your areas. So so maybe if I could start with you, Mary, could you just tell us what the Fraser of Alland Institute actually does? Yeah, sure. So the, the Fraser of Institute is an economic research institute in the economics department at Strathclyde. And what we do is we work with a number of different organisations, including government, uh, private organisations and the third sector. We help them maybe look at um, how they can measure um, progress against their goals, not just their kind of economic goals, but also their, their social and environmental goals. And also we help government um, and other organisations look at whether the policies that they're looking to either advocate for or to put in place, are they achieving the outcomes that, that we want them to achieve? So we do a lot of things like policy evaluation. But really at the heart, what we're trying to do is make sure that policy is evidence-based um, and that you know um, data and evidence is at the heart of policy making. So we know that we're actually implementing the policies in Scotland that will actually work and achieve our long-term aims for the economy and society. So really making that policy a reality for businesses and organisations, because so often I think it seems to many of us that policy making sits in a kind of vacuum, doesn't it? And it doesn't take account of what's really happening with organisations on the ground. Yeah, absolutely. And um, what we see ourselves as a bit of a bridge, I suppose, between, you know, world class research um, and um, policy making practice um, and ensuring the best um, techniques um, and also the, the most innovative uh, data sources um, and evidence can be used in order to inform policy making. So, um, so yeah, we're really here to provide that kind of link between um, academia, um, industry and policymakers. And Jamie, how about the Centre for Energy Policy? Because it sounds as if you probably dovetail into the work that Mary is doing, but, but perhaps from a more theoretical point of view. Yeah, so the, the Centre for Energy Policy is a, a multidisciplinary research hub. We're based in a, a different department. So we're in the School of, of Government and Public Policy. 
But I think um, a lot of what we do does chime with, with what Mary said. So we, we focus on looking at the impacts of, of different policies pr predominantly, um, mainly in the climate and energy theme. And our, our expertise really lies in uh, looking at wider economy modelling, try trying to understand some of the impacts and trade-offs, benefits, uh, opportunities and challenges of, of delivering climate and energy policy. And I guess we also sort of, I think, bring that blend of, of research and doing more policy-orientated work. But really our, our key goal is, is to support policymakers and um, to ensure that the policy that they inevitably roll out is robust and leads to good societal outcomes. Jamie, just, just on, on that, and well, I suppose this question can probably go, go to both of you, is the, the running theme through these, this podcast series, of course, is around net zero and innovation. And um, in the context of, of finances and policy, Scotland's finances, both from the government perspective, but also from a, a private business perspective, have got to undergo a major shift. And I wonder whether person start with, with Jamie is, is what do you see are the big challenges what do, where do you see uh, the next steps that we'd like you to, to, to see happening in that transition of, of sort of I suppose the, the public and private finance side I think you're I think you're right Chris I think there is a, a big challenge ahead particularly in the, the finance space I think maybe to start on a, a positive I think there is more and more evidence that the transition transition to net zero um, in terms of broader cost of the economy might not actually be that significant. So data coming from the likes of the Climate Change Committee is saying that you know, the cost of getting to net zero might actually only be around 1% of, of GDP. So yeah, that evidence is building that the costs might actually not be that great. But I think it does require a big restructuring of the way our economy operates. And I think there's, there's a sort of greater understanding now as well that a lot of the finance that, that will be required um, will need to come from the private sector. So both from investors, from private individuals, we know there's a lot of private wealth around the country. But of course, you'll need the, the correct policy frameworks, uh, you know, the right environment created by government to ensure that investors have the confidence to, to invest. And I think that's, that's one of the big challenges. Um, I feel quite positive about it. I feel like the uh, waves of change are, are coming and we are seeing more and more interest um, particularly around private investor sort of side of things, that that, that interest is growing and investors are realising that it's investing in a green economy is, is really the safe bet for the future. Jamie, I'm really interested in what you've just said. I mean, two things struck me. You're 1% of GDP. I mean, that's extraordinary. I mean, part of me is saying, well, well, this is a no-brainer. Why aren't we doing this now if it's only such a small amount? But I can see that that would still be a, a challenge. Thing. But, but more perhaps that point that private investors have money to invest. But isn't there an issue in what they choose to invest in? Because obviously, if you're investing, you want a return for your investment, don't you? So you're more likely to invest in businesses that have growth attached to them or have technological development that have profitability. But part of the challenge around investment and climate finance is actually investing in, in mitigation and adaption and stuff that probably doesn't have those big returns. And I, I think you're right, unfortunately. And I think that's where there's potentially a bit of a, a shift needed in that investing in you know, green areas investors might expect to have slightly lower returns, but perhaps they're guaranteed over a longer period of time. And I think that's, that is a challenge. We're maybe more used to um, a financial sector that, that you know, expects quick returns, big returns quickly. 
I think there, there has to be a, re a realisation that, that that might not exist in the same way. But perhaps, you know, having a, a stable return over a longer period of time, I think that, that can be attractive as well. And I think, you know, there's potentially just a bit of a, a mindset shift needed. But again, I think that is coming. And um, so I feel I feel quite optimistic about that side of things. And just to add to the optimism, we do see a big shift in terms of the, particularly for large corporates, looking at their um, kind of investment decisions. Um, and they are taking these wider considerations into account. And, you know, one could argue in recent years that that's been a little tokenistic and um, greenwashing and, and all of these sorts of things. But it does feel like things are starting to change and that really is becoming part of their business model because they realise that their consumers, their investors, you know, now expect that to be the case. Now, government does have to, to provide the kind of um, the environment for that private investment to thrive. Um, and quite often that can be about um, government investment to leverage private sector investment. I mean, we've heard only this week about the investment that's planned into Glasgow and to ensure that they can achieve their net zero ambitions by 2030. And a lot of the investment that's expected there is, is private sector investment that will be leveraged out of that government sector backing. So this is likely to be a feature of it. Uh, the next, um, it has to be a feature of the next 10, 20 years if we're going to meet these ambitions. And the thing is, we don't have a choice about this because the cost of not doing anything is just just too high. You know, we, we have to, no matter how much it costs, we need to transition because otherwise um you know we're not going to have a very pleasant world to live in so we really don't have a choice about um investing in these things but the challenges the fiscal challenges over the next few years are considerable in terms of you know just the realities of tight settlements um you know the amount of money we've spent throughout the pandemic and um you know thinking about future changes to the tax system um we've got a few quite momentous things happening in, in society in the next week or so as, as various government support measures are removed from the economy. So there is, you know, there's quite a lot of turmoil in, turmoil in the economic and fiscal landscape to come over the next few years. Um, but government can't lose sight of the, the need to invest in this so that it doesn't cost a hell of a lot more in the future. Just on that, from a, from a finance perspective, I guess perhaps from a data or a statistics perspective, how can you use that to untangle a lot of those intrinsically linked issues? You just mentioned the pandemic there. We could bring that even back to this week where we're seeing this the energy crisis in the UK with uh, um, uh, gas prices going through the roof. How, how can you use data? How can you, I guess I'm looking, um, speaking to Mari here, um, how can you use that information? to actually achieve, I guess, some of these targets that we're talking about? And, and, and what, what are you doing within your institute to, to try and facilitate that, I suppose? Yeah, I mean, if you take, um, you know, the, the impacts on, on trade over the last 18 months or, or we talk about the energy crisis that's happening at the moment, I mean, this phrase is completely overused, so I apologise. But, you know, it's, it's often quite a perfect storm of issues that happen all at once, which cause a crisis like this. Um, you know, that the energy crisis has been caused by, you know, not much wind during the summer domestically, by a bad winter last winter, by countries around the world switching to gas 
gas away from coal, from you know, the Russian supply issues, from the interconnector fire. You know, there's, there's all these issues that happened all at once, which have obviously pushed up um, the price massively, which is likely to remain the case for quite a while. Um, so, so all of these issues have contributed. Um, disruptions to trade that have happened. We're often asked to dis disentangle the impacts of COVID from those from leaving the EU transition period in January. It's impossible to do so. We can make some assumptions about well, what's it's always the hardest thing in, in economics and evaluation is also always to identify what the counterfactual is, what would have happened in the absence of a particular intervention. Um, and that's always the most challenging thing about it, because we don't know what would have happened if it hadn't been for the pandemic. I imagine we would have noticed quite a lot more the impacts of leaving the EU transition period than we did. Um, but, but you know, we can't easily disentangle this. And that's when, in terms of policy evaluation, it's really important to have um, you know, really good data, really good techniques to try and, um, as far as it is possible, to isolate the impacts of particular policy intervention so we can say with as much confidence as we can whether that has achieved the stated objectives at the start of, uh, you know, when you were putting the policy in place. Um, so, so this is some of the work we do to try and do that, but it's, it, you need to have really good data on control groups or a counterfactual in order to be able to really see with confidence whether something has had a, a, the desired effect. I think uh, another aspect where um, the type of work that, that Mary does at the Fraser Founder and the type of work that we do at the, the Centre for Energy Policy, a lot of our work focuses not on forecasting what we, what we think will happen uh, in the future. What, what we can play quite an important role in doing is almost thinking outside the box and, and testing some extremes uh, of, of, of parameters. And I think that's potentially where governments have less capacity to do that. If they're really focused on, you know, potentially modelling the impacts of a, of a new policy, we can, as a research institute, take, take the extremes and look at almost what would the worst case scenario be, play with the different parameters to try and build up that, that you know, more holistic view of, of you know, how policy might impact the, the economy and I think that's when you look at the current crisis you know people are saying it's unprecedented and I think it, it is but again it, it maybe you know it isn't completely un, unimaginable or unthinkable and I guess the role of I think of, of research institutes is to try and look at almost those those worst case scenarios and, and use that to inform more robust uh, policy making but I agree it's um, it can be a big challenge and I think what Mary said about trying to separate some of the, the variables um, and dis disentangle them, I think, is, is important. Just in that sort of five minute conversation there, I'm really struck by the parallels between some of the topics we've discussed previously on this podcast. And I'm thinking here specifically about the area that, that I'm, I work in, which is climate extremes and the interconnectedness of the climate system, as opposed to thinking about things in, in isolation and the complexity of data and yet still having to make some projections um, despite that complexity um, about what's going to happen in the future. The parallels between that conversation and the points that have been made here, I think, uh, are, are really stark and, 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 and really interesting. I think the, the, the idea of cross-disciplinarity, almost trying to achieve this, we're all trying to achieve the same thing. We all want a better environment. We all want uh, better finances. We all want warmer homes. We all want to transition to net zero. All of these things are, are interlinked and, it, and, it's, and it's great to see, I guess, this conversation being had 
but in across different disciplines. Um, now, playing devil's advocate then just ever so slightly is from a financial perspective, thinking what we want to try and achieve here in Scotland, we've got targets, we've got net zero target of 2045, and there are interim targets as to how we're going to try and get there. We've already been talking about private finances as a mechanism, as a means to, to get there. Do we think that these targets are achievable? And I, and I ask that question, Pascal. From a policy, do we have the policies in place, and do and uh, do we have the finances or the, the program for for financial change in place? Um, and perhaps I'll ask that to Mari first. Yeah, it's a it's a, a really good question, um, and you know you can look at the latest climate change plan from the Scottish government in terms of the policies that they set out in order to invest in transitioning to net zero. And then there's a sort of update that's come through the programme for government. And obviously now they're in a cooperation agreement with the Greens who, you know, obviously want um, movement to be quicker um, and more investment to be put in um, to, to, to green policies. I guess if you look at it across the piece um, and the progress that needs to be made, um, I think it's probably not controversial to say that there probably needs to be a step change in ambition and imagination in order to, for us to really transition to net zero. Um, in many ways, a lot of the, maybe Jamie may disagree with me, but a lot of the easy stuff has been done and that's not easy. That hasn't been easy. But um, in terms of generating electricity from renewable sources, you know, we now generate far more electricity than we're going to be able to need, probably, you know, and so we'll export it and that's great and, you know, support the rest of the UK in that. Um, but it's about our, it's about heat. It's about transport. Um, you know, these are the, the tougher things to transition. And whilst there's obviously policies proposed to deal with that, you know, it's, it's the level of ambition needs to be stepped up, I think. And that's what I suppose what COP's all about in November, about getting governments around the world to, to really like put their foot to the floor in terms of dealing with this and transition, you know, transition away from the things that are damaging the planet much more quickly and transition towards those things which you know, which which will be more sustainable um, also much more quickly. You know, we know, for example, um, you know, the, the Greens were keen that um, the government move away from road building programmes to more um, uh, public transport infrastructure. The, the government haven't yet committed to doing that. Um, and we know that although we can move over to EVs um, as part of our transition, we also know we all just need to travel less in private vehicles. You know, that has to happen in order for us to meet these goals. So, um, you know, there are lots of good things. There are lots of good programmes um, uh, being set out, both in terms of supporting COVID recovery, obviously, because a lot of this stuff can generate economic activity. But there are lots of challenges. Do we have the supply chain or the skills in Scotland to be able to support a lot of this activity? I have my doubts. We have the crisis in the construction sector at the moment in terms of prices and being able to source materials. You know, so whilst these ambitions have been set out, some of them may not be deliverable. And I'm not sure they're ambitious enough to actually actually meet the goals that we have. Do you think, I mean, very interesting listening to this conversation, because it seems to me that you both come from a theoretical, I don't mean that in, in any sense, pejorative sense, but a theoretical point of view. So you're, you're, you know, you're modelling, you're looking at policy, you're looking at, at, at frameworks. But with a very long term perspective, um, you know, understanding what needs to happen in the next 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years. Um, part of the problem surely is that most of the people who make the decisions, whether they're Scottish politicians or, or Westminster politicians, essentially think in the very short term. 
don't they? And, you know, they, so that the, I suspect the reason that we have the energy crisis we have is that nobody really was thinking beyond, you know, the next six months, they were all focused on the now, not on the future. So, so how do we get that? How do we get that marrying up of, of the work that you're doing and the energy um, policies that you're looking at and those scenarios with that short term political expediency that governs a lot of decision making? It's, it, it's a great question. Um, I mean, the you know the Scottish government would say that they um, they, they put in place um, you know their their national performance framework, which has long term outcomes, and this is to get away from this sort of short term thinking and and you know uh, chasing quite short term um, political gains in the electoral cycle. Um, so if you set out longer term outcomes rather than committing to numbers of nurses or doctors or teachers or police officers, you know, we're trying to reduce crime, make um, communities safer. We're trying to improve the environment. Then, you know, by setting out the whole of the public sector to achieve these outcomes, that you kind of, you break that link with um, the short-term electoral cycle. And the fact that the parliament has signed up to this as a way of operating in Scotland, you know, has also shown that it's, it's done differently in Scotland. I would question about how much that's actually changed the way policy is made, though, like in a practical sense. Um, you know, there's lots of, of um, warm words about it um, as an approach, but has it really shifted the way we spend money in Scotland? I, I kind of am a little bit more cynical about that. Jamie? Yeah, I think you've, you've highlighted one of the, the real challenges. Um, I feel like particularly the Scottish government are, are facing. Um, I actually think the, the ambition that they, they have set is is very high, particularly when we, we look at things like the, the 2030 target in Scotland, 75% reduction in emissions. My, my feeling is that, you know, that is, that is very ambitious. Um, and when, you know, the government have done the, the, the modelling behind that to look at what parts of the economy, you know, we need to reduce emissions uh, and to, to meet that target. And it, it, it leads to some, again, I would say fairly ambitious targets for things like heat. Um, the Scottish government uh, have kind of realised that um, by 2030, you'll need to have a million of our 2.5 million homes with a low carbon uh, heating system. And again, to me, that, that feels really ambitious. I think the, the, the challenge is um, really looking at the, the delivery of that in, um, in the short term. And it really means that we need, we need action to start, to start now. And again, I think it's, it's challenging, but I feel like... Uh, universities can play a big role in, in providing data and evidence to show how some of the long-term outcomes might actually you know benefit benefit society bring economic benefits bring social benefits so I feel that although our modeling is perhaps looking at that longer longer term uh, scale and longer term issues I feel like providing that evidence will really help policymakers and decision makers build confidence in the really bold decisions that we have to make. And these are these are scary decisions, but we don't have that much time to, to ponder over them. So I think the more that, that we can do to really build confidence um, and, and assist those, those policymakers in, in, um, in making those scary decisions, I feel like there's, there's a big opportunity there. You've both been talking uh, just a little bit there about um, heat and the needing to 
I guess, bring that element into policy. And I think it's safe to say that the Scottish government up until fairly recently has been focusing more on renewable energy than it has on perhaps heat um, and, and perhaps tied to it to a lesser degree um, uh, on transport. And I think we've got that link there between heat and efficiency in, in buildings, but there's also then that, that link to uh, fuel poverty and health and well-being as well. And we've touched on that again in some of our, our previous um, um, podcasts. But that idea that we need to not only transform um, our policies and our, our larger sectors, but also, of course, it's down to individual households and, and the individual levels. And Jamie, I was wondering from a, perhaps a policy perspective and a government's perspective is, are you seeing that those connections being made or do you see those as being quite disconnected? In other words, there's a lot of stuff going on at the, at the high level and some notion of what needs to happen at the ground level, the, the individual household level. Is there a disconnect there still? I think policymakers are, are very aware of, of the link. Uh, you know, they know that we have to meet climate change targets, but we also have uh, in the Scottish government a fuel poverty strategy and fairly stringent targets to meet fuel poverty. I think there's there's a growing awareness that they need to be tackled together. I think the issue is, and it's why we've seen the fuel poverty rates stay fairly uh, consistently high in Scotland at around 20 to 25%. Um, I think there's a, a real challenge in figuring out how to, how to make uh, the match and how to bring them together. So how do you reduce emissions and, and meet those fuel poverty targets? And I think there are lots of options out there energy efficiency being being one um potentially low low carbon heat systems if you had a way of uh, installing uh, heat pumps in local authority housing or in housing associations there's a chance that your heating bills could come down so again meeting those emission targets while also potentially reducing fuel poverty but there are there are difficult hurdles who pays for the the heat pump installation um do you rely on local authorities to have the funding to do that? We know that that's going to be a huge challenge. So, I, I, and again, with energy efficiency, it's it's the same challenge. We know that it can bring cost savings over the longer term, but we need to um, have a, a financial system uh, and an investment there to put the measures in in the first place. And I think that's that's a big challenge and overcoming those, those hurdles, uh, I think is what government is stuck with at the moment. They know that there is a solution that can meet both challenges, but there are there are hard hurdles in the way. Um, and I think that's what the government are trying to work through at the moment. And, and that's the essential problem with private finance, isn't it? Because it's not particularly attractive to a private investor to invest in heat pump transition for, for social housing or, or, or local energy networks or any of those things that actually would help the decarbonisation of heating. Um, you know, they don't necessarily bring the returns that perhaps investing in a, in a hydrogen a hydrogen solution or, or an offshore wind firm do. So you've got, that's where you come up against the rock and the hard place, isn't it? Between what we need to happen and what government should be supporting and then where we um, actually gain that investment and that um, that income from to make those things happen. Yeah, I think you're you're right. Um, it's almost we're we're at too early a stage for investors to have trust or the, the 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 frameworks and the models to be set up for for investors to to know where to invest. Um, I think there again there are potentially opportunities around things like service companies, and if you had uh, companies providing heat as a service. That's maybe something that investors could invest in. But again, at the moment, I think 
we're just not we're not there yet we all kind of talk about these theoretical things um but there's nothing really concrete for investors to to invest in yet but again i think that is changing quickly um so i think again that's quite an exciting an exciting space yeah and and just thinking about housing and um particularly social housing um you know we can't forget that there's quite a complex landscape in scotland i suppose of different bodies that are involved in the provision of these sorts of services um and obviously the government's going to have to um work with these um, particularly registered social landlords and housing associations to whilst obviously setting out that there are these requirements on the housing stock going forward they have to recognize that you know and the level of indebtedness that they're prepared to build up as housing associations, um, uh, you know, and their willingness to to invest in these um, things that they're not going to get the return for, given the, the the levels of social rent and things like that. You know, there has to be a recognition that there is going to have to be quite a lot of public backing of these sorts of things in order for, um, you know, really important bodies like housing associations to be able to to help the housing stock transition, um, and you know, as people on the, the lowest incomes who are likely to 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 be in in that situation. And therefore, if we want not just a transition, but this this just transition that you know policymakers keep talking about, um, and, and homes, um, well heated homes are such an important part of as as Chris said of, of health and well being as as well as um, you know the, the part of the decarbonisation story. What can we do? And and I say that we as in that's a dual question. What can we do from a university research perspective to try and uh, I suppose, influence some of these things that we're talking about, either policy, finance focused, to ensure that sort of that just transition that we've we've touched on a, a few times. What can we do from a research perspective, but also what can we as in everyday people, what, what can be done at the, the very much from the ground level up to try and influence the, this change and what's needed? That's a, that's a, a brilliant question. Um, I mean, you know, I mean, I think it's really important. Um, personally, I think it's very important that the research we do is um, has a laser focus on the, the societal and policy problems that we have to solve in Scotland and in the wider UK. Um, I think that's what we should be expending all of our efforts on, um, you know, to ensure that, um, you know, we're doing the things that are actually going to achieve the outcomes we're, we, we're setting out to achieve, that we hold government to account. Um, when they say they're going to do things that they do them, um, you know, and we have a big role in um, supporting and informing uh, people like parliamentary committees in order to to question the government's plans and that they're they're um, you know progressing towards the achievement of these goals. So you know we have a role, I think, in in form informing the the wider I guess policy making community um, and also the public about about what the government says they wish to do and whether the evidence tells us whether what they're doing will actually achieve that. Um, you know, you know, us as an institute, we don't um, advocate for particular policy positions or anything like that. We just want to ensure that, you know, there is actually evidence that what government is doing is actually going to lead to the desired outcomes. And, you know, that that isn't always the case. One of, one of my, um, I guess, concerns about delivering a, a just transition is, is the pace of change that's required. And we know that decisions... Um, you know, in government will really have to be to be made at pace. And I think, as I've said before, anything that we can do to, to provide evidence, try and highlight what the trade-offs are, what some of the unintended consequences of, of policy decisions might be, to me, that's, that's where we can really play a role in trying to understand some of these societal outcomes and, and try and understand whether policy that's 
very well intentioned um, could lead to to higher inequality, for example, in Scotland. And I think that's um, yeah where where we can provide a, a really important role. I don't think there are too many policymakers out there who would intentionally want to to drive inequality further, um, or or you know that. Um, yeah, that there's not many people out there who would want to have an unjust transition, but my worry is that it's um, it's about the pace of change and, and how quickly some decisions have to be to be made. And I think that's mm. a big challenge when you have that interplay of businesses and the private sector in you know who are very much a part of of delivering the net zero challenge. They often have to make uh, decisions you know, overnight. We can see in the oil and gas industry workers are, are laid off and, and brought on very quickly. Um, so I think there's a real challenge in, in trying to make sure that we think as much as possible about some of the, the unintended consequences. I was going to ask you, Jamie, you know, what, what an unintended consequence was, but I think you kind of alluded to it with, with, with oil and gas. But are there any that you can think about specifically around some of the cleaner technologies or the clean energy solutions that that, that might result in something that none of us had thought about, you know, what seemed to be a good solution, um, you know, a green solution actually turns out to have really detrimental effects on either society as a whole or, or even the environment. I think there's, there's a really interesting example from the development of the renewable sector over the last 10, 15 years. We've seen that the, the, the policy support around the, the rollout of renewables has been very strong. We've had things like the contract for difference, renewables obligation so that that government support and, and subsidy essentially has been really um, instrumental in uh, the rollout of renewables in, in Scotland and across the UK and that's one of the the stories that we're championing you know it's had a, played a big role in reducing emissions allowing us to, to stop burning coal for example but we know that that subsidy has been uh, put on electricity bills and solely on electricity bills and that's been really good for providing a, a stable and consistent framework and subsidy for developers. I think it's you know a large part of its success. It's meant that the subsidy hasn't, to some extent, had to rely on uh, funding. You know, with decisions we made in, in parliamentary periods, we've had consistency across different parliamentary periods. But we can see that drawing the, those subsidies from electricity bills has driven up costs, and. One, one example of where this has had unintended consequences uh, is for households in Scotland that rely on electric heating. So houses that aren't connected to the gas grid, they rely on electric heating. And we know that the cost of heating a home in this way in the past has been you know, two to three times higher than homes that have had a, a gas connection. And that's it's really ironic because these households are, are meeting their heating needs with electricity as the low carbon option but it's been really expensive. And we know that fuel poverty rates in those households with electric heating are up at near 50%. You know, households are really struggling to heat their homes. I think that's a, a clear example of where something that's been well-intentioned um, and, and has driven positive change in some ways, there has been a, a, a quite negative um, consequence to that as well. And I think trying to predict those sort of things uh, and at least make it obvious where those consequences might be, um, I think is important. And I guess the challenge is you're trying to deliver these policies across the UK. So there will be unintended consequences in different geographies and regions um, that I think are important to highlight. 
Yeah, absolutely. There's there's never one simple answer to this, is it? I mean, it's a complexity and a and a network of of things that one has to consider. Chris, we should be putting it, our conversation to a close, sadly. But I think you had a a, a kind of closing question or remark you wanted to share yeah. with our guests. Uh, I have a nice easy question for for our guests, just 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 to finish with, and and it ties in, of course, with a lot everything we've been talking about here. But um, if I could ask each of you in, in turn, what because we're in Scotland, where we have a devolved government system in, in the UK, ask each of you, there's a sub-question within here, what are we doing brilliantly in Scotland that is leading the way that we as a country should be proud of and should be rolled out across um, the wider UK, perhaps in, in, even to other countries? And then on the counter side to that is, what are we missing? What are we not doing that we, you know, one thing that we really, really should be doing a lot quicker, um, perhaps... I'll go to Jamie first. I think one of the things that the, the Scottish government in particular has done very well is setting setting ambition. I think we've seen uh, climate change targets in Scotland, you know, being set ahead of other nations, and I think playing that kind of uh, yeah ambitious, um, you know, Scottish government would say world leading, um, playing that you know kind of leader. In terms of climate change targets and ambition, I think has has been what we've done really well, and I think there's um, real value in that. And I think that's perhaps a role that the UK government are now trying to take in the the lead up to COP. So, to me, that's something that almost started in in Scotland, and I think um, that's something that the, the Scottish government can be can be proud of. Um, I, I guess the, the challenge behind that is is delivery, and I think that's where um, the Scottish government will be really challenged in particular, particularly in the energy space where um, they don't have control and powers over some of the big levers that they, they need to pull to, to get to um, those ambitious targets. So I think we'll have to see the Scottish government working much more closely with the UK government um, to really make sure that that ambition is met. Yeah, nice, easy question to finish off. Thanks for that, Chris. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, I think I think as well as the the setting out the ambition, um, which um, the Scottish government have rightly sort of trumpeted, um, I think the focus on the the nature of the transition and the you know the, the just nature of it has been welcomed. Again, that's been set out you know in terms of the ambition of that to you know because sort of maybe traditional um, responses to trying to change behavior around taxing or or prices you know are likely to hit the poorest in society you know if our, our energy costs more our food costs more our clothing costs more because it kind of should given <laughs> how, how much it kind of carbon it uses up then it's going to hit those people who spend basically all their income on those things um, the most um, and you know so thinking about the poorest members of our society as we transition transition ensuring that they're protected from from that is is really important but again the ambition has been set out um, as, as with the climate change targets but it's how does that that translate into action and I think on on energy and climate change in particular which is meshing in a lot with, with overall economic policy 
Uh, Jamie's right. This is a very complex landscape for the you know between devolved and reserved powers, and neither government in recent years has given us much faith in their ability to work together to achieve common goals. Um, you know, we've seen the UK government is obviously moving to spend more and more in devolved areas and looking to spend in infrastructure investments in Scotland and in Wales, and it, which would traditionally be the in the locus of the devolved government. Um, so, you know, I think there does need to be more things done to kind of improve intergovernmental relations and ensure that the, the two layers of government work together to achieve these ambitions. That's a pretty um, ambitious ask at the end there, really, Mary, if I may say so. <laughs> um, you know, sitting down here in the South, I can, uh, I'm wringing my hands. Um, thank you both so much. I mean, absolutely fascinating. And, and I'm struck again, as I always am at these podcasts, about just the richness of the thought that's coming out of our universities and in particularly out of Strathclyde. So Chris, you know, thank you for, for putting this series together because it's been absolutely fascinating. And, and we've had a chance to talk to some, some terrific guests. And our guests today, Mary Spurridge and Jamie Stewart, are no exception. So Mary and Jamie, thank you so much for being with us. What is it? Was, uh, it was great to chat with you. Yeah, thanks for having me along and thanks for the really interesting discussion. You've been listening to Innovate Strathclyde, the podcast from the University of Strathclyde. Why not subscribe on Spotify, iTunes or your favourite podcast app to make sure you never miss an episode and to catch up on previous editions. Or you can visit the University of Strathclyde website. Thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>